Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. As you might expect, in the days following the landfall of a major hurricane, the finger-pointing has already begun. A good deal of it is justified, some of it is silly. It is true that Florida in general, and Florida's Gulf Coast in particular, including our own community, suffers from beach house-itis. Everyone wants a beach house. And so we will build the largest homes possible in the most vulnerable locations imaginable Defying common sense, building codes of Mother Nature in the most arrogantly way conceivable. It's what we do. So when a major hurricane arrives, we need not be surprised at the resulting destruction. It's easy to blame builders. It's easy to blame zoning boards and county commissions and carpetbaggers and whoever. But the thing about blaming a society is that We are the society, and everyone, it seems, wants a house at the beach, even though the sustainability of such desires leaves a lot to be desired. So, we turn on the meteorologist instead. How could they cast a cone of uncertainty with such a massive scope, Pensacola to Key West? And then they sort of settled on Tampa and St. Pete. And then Hurricane Ian took a more southerly route, hanging a hard ride and landed in Lee County instead. Sanibel Island, Pine Island, Fort Myers, Cape Coral, more than 50 people are dead in Lee County as of this morning, more than 100 from the storm as a whole. And again, this is not a surprise. Winds at 150 miles an hour And a storm surge of 18 feet is not survivable in a coastal community. Hurricane Charlie proved this. So did Michael. So did Katrina. So did a hundred storms over the decades. Still, blame must be affixed. It's human nature. It's unavoidable. And also unavoidable is the cost of recovery. This storm from Puerto Rico to Cuba to Florida to the Carolinas might end up being the most expensive hurricane ever. And that's saying a lot. Almost a million people are still without power. Who knows how long until it is all restored and who really knows how many people are now homeless in Florida and beyond. It is in the thousands. It's reminiscent of Hurricane Katrina almost 20 years ago. A quarter of a million people, more than half of the New Orleans population, had to leave. I was reminded of this a couple weeks ago. Barbara, Cindy, and I were in Pensacola 
for our anniversary weekend, and we went to this little local Cajun restaurant, and it was opening day for the NFL season, and the Saints were playing the Falcons, and I knew I was the only Falcon fan in the joint, because everybody was dressed in Saints gear, and they were all to a person. I asked many of them, every one of them, a transplant from New Orleans that had left after the storm, and to find a little relief and a little civilization again and just had not gone back home all these years later. And one of the reasons I think that we stubbornly resist evacuation when a hurricane is coming, I know one of the reasons that I wait to the last possible minute, is besides the naivete of saying, oh, it won't hit us, is that we hate that sense of being homeless. That sense of being ungrounded, even for a little while. As much as we all love to travel, and I know people in this room love to travel, isn't it always good to come home? Be rooted at home? And so we hate being unsettled. We don't want to feel like we've let go of something precious to us. We don't like the feeling of being displaced. What a sterile word. For such a messy experience. Displaced. After a hurricane, as many of you know and some have experienced, there's no home to which you can return. It's been washed away. As is the entire community. The entire network of support and all that was familiar. Thousands are in that position today. And then Anna mentioned the other numbers. 2.5 million people are displaced today within Ethiopia. Due to war and famine. There are 7.5 million Ukrainians who have been displaced and fled their homeland because of the Russian invasion. There are 6 million displaced Afghans, many internally because of the ascendancy of the renewed Taliban. There are a million refugees currently roaming out of Central America. 4 million out of the corruption and poverty of Venezuela. Another 100,000 Mexican residents have been put to flight because of the drug cartels. Yemen, Iran, Syria, Palestine. All told, there are now more than 100 million displaced people in the world. The highest number in human history. Not even during World War II did we reach such a number. And it has doubled in just the last 10 years. For some, this will be temporary. They will return home when tensions ease or economic conditions improve. For others, their homecoming will take years, maybe decades. And for others, they will never return home. Never. Home is destroyed. Or home is so effectively and fundamentally changed by events, by violence, by war, by pestilence, by storms... That there is nothing even to return to and to rebuild. They are permanently exiled. And that is another sterile word attached to a complicated story. Exile. It's a favorite word and a favorite theme of the Old Testament. And would, could, one could argue that exile is the main theme of the Old Testament. A people are chosen and groomed, and beloved of God, 
And through their own foolishness, however, they throw away this blessing. They have built on sand in the face of the storm. And they lose everything. They lose their homes. They lose their land. They are evicted. They are forced into exile. The exact circumstances that we have heard today from the prophet Jeremiah is the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. and the subsequent deportation of those who survived that prolonged war and famine. The Jewish people whose new year began just this last week, by the way, have lived through a series of cataclysmic events. Attempted exterminations that still shape their psyche, their worldview, and their religion. Number one, the imprisonment of their ancestors by the Egyptians. A true formation story that leads them eventually to the promised land. Number two, the events that provide the background to the book of Jeremiah. Third, there is a second destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. A dispersion of the Jews that was so complete that it took 1900 years for the Jewish nation to be reassembled. And then the fourth great crisis in the mid-20th century, the HaShoah in Hebrew, we call it the Holocaust, the systematic attempt to kill every Jew living in Europe by Hitler, the Nazis, and their collaborators. Jews, no exile like few other people groups in the world. From their primitive beginnings to their contemporary setting, they have often been a homeless, homesick, home-seeking people. Theirs is one of the greatest meta-narratives ever told. Indicative of most every great story ever told throughout human history. If you'll notice, the greatest stories ever told, and the ones that we hold on to, go something like this. Something is lost, usually home, homeland, or place, or stability. And then there is this journey to recover it. To get back home, back to self, back to place, to get back to wholeness, back to restoration. And in the movies, you know, and in all the good books, the arrival might be delayed and it might get roadblocked and it might get circumvented. But in the end, the hero or the heroine always gets back home. Always. But in life, that is not always the case, is it? I will paint with broad strokes here using our own continent as an example. I want you to see this image. Tomorrow is Columbus Day in some locales, Indigenous Peoples Days in others. The first peoples, the first tribes to inhabit North America came here more than 15,000 years ago. They crossed what is now the Bering Sea before the great glaciers of the last ice age receded. And when the first Europeans arrived just 500 years ago, there were 10 million Native Americans living in almost a thousand tribes or nations in a dozen large supercultures. European colonists pushed these tribes to the edge of the continent, to the edge of extinction. There's no historical doubt about this. Their lands were stolen, their treaties were broken, they were disseminated by disease, they were forced to assimilate. By 1900, 100 years ago, 
there were only 500 of these tribes left, and the native population was down from 10 million to 250,000. It was the greatest and most ruthless and effective genocide in the history of the world. Those peoples, represented by all those colors, will never recover. Ever. They will never hunt fully their native lands again. They will not repossess all that has been taken from them. They will proudly and fiercely maintain their traditions. They will protect their cultural identity. They will preserve history, language, and custom. But they can't go home again. And those who are home be it on an Indian reservation in Oklahoma or in the Dakotas, it's a tiny slice of what they once had and is now often rife with poverty and sickness and shortened life expectancy and all the ills that a colonized people must bear. Now, take that image and lay it on top of Jeremiah 29 and you have the biblical picture that is being described. We call them even the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the time we get to Jeremiah 29, there are only two left. Ten have been completely exterminated. And these two tribes that are left are now pushed to the edge of the continent. Now pushed to the very edge of extinction. And now in this foreign land, far from home, this first and second generation of deportees who will never see their homeland again. What is God's word to them? Now what, God? What should we do? Now that everything has been taken from us. And God says, well, you better get busy living. Isn't that what you heard? Settle in. Get a mortgage. Build a house. Plant a garden. Get married. And so you understand that this is not going to be a temporary situation. Make sure your children get married. And see your own grandchildren born and raised. This is going to take a while. Is what God is saying to them. Raise your grandchildren Yes, in that foreign land, far from the familiarity of your homeland. Start over. And then this last bit. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you. Pray the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Just imagine God instructing you when you've been forcefully removed from everything that is familiar and you're in a foreign land and God says, Pray for where you are. Because if that city does well, you will do well. And if things go bad for them, it's bad for you too. There are seasons in life where we are exactly where we feel we need to be. The stars are aligned. It's a groove. The relationships are right. The location is right. The work is fulfilling. It's not perfect, but it's satisfying enough. And then there are those times in life, and you've had these, 
where everything is wrong. The mojo is lost. The environment has everything to be desired. People are a drag. The work is bleeding your soul. And in those times, we often make changes. You know when we will change, we will change things when we get miserable enough with the situation how it is. That's human nature too. Nobody changes a thing until they seem that they have to. But then sometimes, sometimes, changes can't be made at all. Not in a relation to where we are, not what we are doing. We can't jettison the relationships that we have. We can't escape the work. We can't run away to some broader horizon. What then? Just so you know, and I don't recommend this, but today is my oldest son's 24th birthday. Where did the time go, right? And, and there, there's a law in the state of Florida, if you're a parent, even as kids are running for the door, There's a law in the state of Florida and in Georgia, we've lived in both those places, where if you've just had enough and you're about to, like, murder your child, you can just take them to a fire department and drop them off, no questions asked. Did you know that? Do you you wish you had known that? I would look at Cindy sometimes and I said, let's take him to the fire department. It's good to talk about. It's not really doable. What do you do in cases like those? Well, you build your home. You plant your garden. You settle in not to sour, not to nurse your resentments, but to live, to flourish. Don't dwindle away, God says to them. Don't give up. I know things haven't gone the way that you thought they would go and you're not going to go back to the way things were. But don't give up. Chart out this new life in this new circumstance that you have even though it's not ideal. Become a better neighbor for the sake of the neighborhood and for your own neighborly self. Seek love. Find your people where you are. Grow strong where you are. People have said to me things like, well, I just don't feel like God can use me here. Anybody ever said something like that? I have. To which I have responded, can God use you somewhere where you are not? For here is where you are and where you will seem to be for some time. Others have a severe case of FOMO. Fear of missing out. It's a legitimate thing. Oh, surely there's just something else better over there. Oh, if I could only be there. Oh, I'd hate to miss it. Look at all the fun they are having over there. And the problem when you get FOMO, the fear of missing out, is you tend to miss everything that's going on right in front of you. The grass is sometimes greener on the other side of the fence. That is for sure, but I will bet you the water bill is higher. Or, as the great Irma Bombeck put it, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. 
That was the title of a book that she wrote 50 years ago. Carol Burnett went on to star as the leading role when the book was adapted into a movie in 1978. It's dated and it's cheesy, but it's effective nonetheless. There's this city-slick couple, and they're exhausted by life in New York, and they decide that life in the suburbs is where it should be for them. And so they move, them and their three kids. They flee the Big Apple just knowing that open space and fresh air in a larger home in the burbs will cure them of all their doldrums and cause their children to behave splendidly and launch the wife, Carol Burnett's writing career. But as it turns out, the adjustments at school are a disaster. The husband, dad, has to now commute to the city and spend days away. Their front door is bombarded by nosy neighbors and gossip and insurance salesmen and Girl Scouts selling cookies and plant parties. And they have to consider getting another car, even though they've only had one car for their entire life when they lived in the city. There's almost a divorce when the family dog arrives and it's the size of a small hippopotamus. And then and then there's almost an affair that breaks up the marriage. Their only solace is their lawn. When they get there, it's just dirt and clay, and the whole family goes to work on this lawn, each one in their own way, and before it's over, it's just thriving shrubs and green grass and growing trees. Their lawn, their yard is the envy of the entire neighborhood, but even then, in the end, the building department shows up and digs up their entire yard because they've got the wrong septic tank underneath, and it's been leaching out underneath all this time. The grass is always greener. Over the septic tank. The whole point of Bombeck's book is it's comedic and it's truthful. That just perfect scenario in your mind isn't going to stay perfect. If you succeed in bringing that image to fruition, it will be rife with its own set of frustrations and disappointments. That utopia that you imagine that if I just had that wife or that husband, if I just lived on that street, if I just drove that car, if I just had that opportunity, if I could just go back to that time, then all would be well. That is a fallacy. You can only live the life you have been given. And you can only thrive in the soil in which you have been planted, whether there's a septic tank beneath you or not. You choose to seek the peace and prosperity of where you are situated, knowing your own peace and prosperity are connected and at stake, or you dream of peace and prosperity elsewhere, somewhere else you may never even visit, much less live. It takes... A ton of courage to make big changes in your life. To set off on some epic journey. But I have also discovered that such epics are often attempts at running away. More than they are searching for change. I have also discovered that sometimes... It takes more courage to construct the life you have with the hand you have been dealt than to try to escape it and go somewhere else. As a spiritual lesson, an old Quaker placed a sign on a vacant piece of land 
next to his home. And the sign said this, this land will be given to anyone, given to anyone who is truly satisfied. Well, it didn't take long for a young entrepreneur to stop, see the sign, and he thought, well, I'm just going to take possession of that land. He goes to the Quaker's door, and he knocks on the door. Quaker comes to the door, opens it up. The young man says, hello there, I'm here for the land. And the Quaker says, well, young man, are you really, are you truly satisfied with your life? And the young man said, I've been very successful. I've closed a lot of business deals. I've got more than I could ever spend, more than I'll ever need. I am really satisfied. And the Quaker just sort of laughed and said, if you're truly satisfied, why are you looking for more? 